Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm talking with Lorelai Kelly. Lorelai is the founder of the Resilient Democracy Coalition based at the Beak Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where she leads research on modernizing the United States Congress. Lorelai actually got her start in Washington, D.C. as a nuclear weapons expert, and her work today focuses on building inclusive and informed democratic systems. We explore what that really means, and I just love Lorelai's ranging perspective on how data, technology, and new participation methods can help bring the voice of regular people more into the lawmaking process. Lorelai is a funny, passionate, and engaging conversationalist, and every time I tried to edit this conversation down, I just didn't. I sort of just wound her up and let her run. I think you'll hear that in this chat. From her characterization of her original hippie mom, to her tales of being thrown off trains in Berlin, to her perspectives on the possibilities for a shared vision of the future, I find myself consistently emotionally and intellectually engaged with Lorelai's conversation, hanging on to see where she'll take the discussion next. In the years I've known her, I've always appreciated the unique perspective she brings to any problem as a result of her scatterplot life, as she calls it. From her youth in rural New Mexico, Lorelai attended Grinnell College and Stanford University, as well as the Air Command and Staff College of the U.S. Air Force. She's co-authored two books and numerous articles. We really run the gamut in this talk, discussing the problem of climate change and how an engaged, inclusive political process can help. She talks about some of the defining chapters in her life, a high school transition out of the leafy academic neighborhoods of Berkeley, California, to the desert of northern New Mexico, her time spent supporting the Underground Library in Berlin in 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, a recent transition from city life back to rural during the pandemic, and I get a sense of how living in such different contexts underpins her ability to balance and navigate opposing worldviews, something so necessary for forward progress on climate. Along the way, she enthuses about the nature of Americans' eternal problem-solving optimism and a treasured collection of show tunes from a dear uncle. I really hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. So hi, Lorelai. Welcome to Arrows on Air. Thank you for making time for me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. We were just having a chuckle about our dogs, and I had to ask you to take your dog off your lap because I could hear her chomping. Yeah, she's mysteriously deaf until I open something that sounds delicious. Then she's like a a 12-month-old puppy. <laughs> I put her outside, so, so she's sitting outside looking at me now. <laughs> do you, so did you bring her, have you been bringing her on your cross-country travels recently? Because I know you're based in Washington, D.C., but right now you are in Aztec, New Mexico, which we're going to have to talk about because that's an unusual spot. But is she yeah. is she like your car companion? Are you having van life with your dog? 
Yeah, she's she's my navigator in the front seat. And the best part is she doesn't fight with me about which radio station or music we listen to. <laughs> so, um, she's great. She's driven across the country twice in the last 12 months. So accommodating. She's a good girl. Yeah, she's. I would love to start with your the beginning of your career in Washington, D.C., which was as a nuclear specialist. Right. And then. But now you've gotten focused into governing systems. And I also think of you as sort of like somebody who specializes in peacekeeping. How would you characterize your work? I think that um, like I'm in that, that sort of social entrepreneur space when it comes to improving democratic systems. Um, I was a nuclear weapons sort of expert when I came to D.C. to work on national security issues, but it soon became obvious to me working on these issues in Congress that if I wanted to see a happy ending, that we needed to change the way the whole system heard uh, the world and implemented change. Because and so you were advising, uh, think, Laura, like go back though, you were advising like nuclear policy in the 90s? Well, so I, yes, I, I lived in Berlin in 1989, and I was there as a research fellow to study the nuclear arms race and arms mm -hmm. control. And in the nine, up until through the 90s, really, the only way to be sort of a progressive or a creative person in national security was in arms control. And it's pretty nerdy, <laughs> but it, it, if you didn't want to sort of be an activist in opposition to what was going on in the world, that was the one corner where you could still introduce progressive ideas in, into the policymaking space. And so it was kind of a natural place to go if I was interested in, you know, world peace and understanding and not all of us, you know, having our security based on this sort of mutual suicide pact. Actually, it was called Mutual Assured Destruction. That was the name of the policy. And the intricate details of, you know, multiple reentry vehicles and space lasers. And of course, Star Wars was a big piece of it. And how do you defend against something like this? So I got uh, very deeply involved in all the technical, you know, nuclear security arguments and issues. But really, my big love was how do we get out of this conversation and start to build toward a far more positive, livable future? Um, and, you know, fortunately, I think the end of the Cold War in uh, 1989 and then the end of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, allowed, allowed that conversation to be serious and, you know, become part of the uh, governing priorities. So that's been an exciting transition while I've been working in national security issues and then in the U.S. Congress and now. Uh, adjacent to Congress. So yeah, it, that's how I came to DC as a nuclear weapons specialist, but it was never something I really, <laughs> that I really intended on pursuing full time. It's a, you know, there are no happy endings. If that's what you study, you have to uh, also create a different way to get along in the world. And I think we're at a moment where we can do that. Although we have other globally, globally unifying threats now, right? I mean, in in some ways, mm -hmm. um, like climate, climate for change, example. for sure. That that's that, that's we have the analogy, right? Like that we have a metaphor in our recent history for understanding that these are, you know, 
this is something that you have to collaborate and communicate and cooperate on. And you also have to prevent. And, you know, getting humans to build systems that are precautionary or that are preventive is probably the, the largest task in humanity. Uh, but we can do it. I mean, that's the that's the thing is that w- once we get our attention centered and start making this a priority, I, I f- fully feel we can pivot. So you're such a, I always, one thing I've always respected and found so interesting about, I mean, you're, you're working in policy and at that policy level, but you are also a committed sort of activist grassroots type person. Like you've always got, you're, you're definitely not just somebody who's focused in the theory. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, I think in our, in our first conversation, you were sharing with me a little bit about what it's like in Aztec these days and connecting with the community there because you're, you still have a policy mind, but the, your present work in this moment um, is a little bit different, right? Oh, for sure. So I came home uh, last a year ago in March um, to do something that a lot of people are doing is, is you know, take care of a parent uh, during the pandemic. And um, I came back to where I grew up, which is the Four Corners region of northern New Mexico. It's uh, very rural, um, you know, pretty, uh, pretty working class or very dependent on the oil and gas industry. Uh, really conservative, like for lots of reasons. One is just, you know, the extractive industry dominating the economic conversation and then a lot of organized religion. Um, I uh, was here for junior high and high school, having moved here from the Berkeley Hills. So you can just imagine the tra- <laughs> that change. It couldn't go from more sort of uh, blue to more red, and uh, it's so that's always epic. Just a, your parents, yeah, unique. Your parents got divorced, right? Yeah, my parents. Uh, classic uh, Las Vegas marriage, and probably should have <laughs> stayed there, like everything else in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I uh, parents got divorced in California. The whole, uh, you know, cinematic version of long term. Mm. Uh, you know, dissolution and family mm-hmm. spread out all over the place. And we really picked up from the Berkeley Hills. And my mom was all of a sudden a single parent with three kids and a, you know, a school nurse. So really just honestly couldn't afford to stay there. So we left uh, California and came back. It and is like a movie. Her, her Lorelai. Yeah. It, it's a total movie. <laughs> I'm sure, um, I'm sure a lot so of people I, have yeah. something like that. I think it's worth just, sorry for delving a little bit, but the the roots are so um, fundamental to how you think about things and coming out of this leafy academic suburb of San Francisco into the arid desert of northern New Mexico it's a it is so dramatic so what did you like what was your high school what was that like how do you think that kind of shaped you and now you're oh, back there <laughs> with so much experience <laughs> yeah. and smarts. Uh, well, you know, I uh, my first year living here, I tried everything to like make friends and uh, join softball. Tried to, yeah, we had these hippie clothes too, like the fringe outfits and the plaid pants, and the my mom sewed everything. So we were like these sort of 
<laughs> crafty, uh, you know, homemade big lace collars, outfits, and um, lived in the middle of nowhere, like in New Mexico. So, so we lived in an unincorporated county, had backyard horses. My mom got a plow. Um, she's like an original hippie, like nothing, everything that we had was recyclable. Like you, she, she was always growing, growing something under the sink in a terrarium or in the window in the winter. <laughs> um, so, so lots of animals all over the place, just a real love of animals in my family. And, um, yeah, so I didn't really have any friends for about a year. And then, uh, I sort of was discovered by the most continues to be one of the most wonderful people in my life. Who's now a veterinarian in Denver, but really just decided that she was going to reel me in. And she was this sort of a rich kid and the daughter of the local political representative and one of the most kind hearted, generous people I know. Um, her dad is also owns through family legacy, a big oil and gas company. So I have real, you know, personal experience in, in that part of the world too. And just like, you know, how those uh, folks, a lot of them moved in from Texas and, you know, established dominion over the San Juan basin and, and how we're living in the environmental aftermath of that now, certainly the, you know, the, the orphan wells with the methane blowing into the atmosphere, oh my God. the real oh overdependence my. on this industry, which really was a, a unicorn in the sense that you could graduate from high school and get a really well-paid job for the rest of your life. But that's spinning down now. It's not going to happen anymore. And I, I see that as directly related to the kind of QAnon right-wing, uh, you know, falsehoods and misinformation and, and sense of grievance that has been become part of sort of a grievance economy. I don't know what else to call it, but sort of this diverse set of grievances up against this monolithic blame object, if it's race, if it's government. But you do see a lot of that here and trying to and, you know, peel it back like the layers of an onion. I, I think I can probably do that more capably than most people just because I grew up in it. But I came here with that and so you, so you, Northern California attitude, right? I grew up in the Berkeley Hills there initially. So you were always kind of, you know, you were in it, but you also had the ability to observe it from a different perspective while you were uh, immersed in it in high school. And then you left and took your life in a completely different direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the thing that I think about when I was in high school in here in sort of Four Corners, Farmington, Aztec, Shiprock, uh, the fancy places are like Telluride and Durango and Wolf Creek. That's, <laughs> those are the headline places in Colorado for skiing. But in the south of the border, uh, like it's, it, I, I was just such a, a, a beneficiary of liberal institutions, right? Like I, I couldn't even afford to apply to colleges. I had like a certain amount of money that I made at the movie theaters. And so I could apply to three, maybe four schools. And that was it because it cost a lot. I don't know if you remember this, but it costs a lot to apply to schools. So like just this idea that there's just really hard and fast limits. And I didn't have a lot of information in my high school. There, there was sort of Army, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Navy. 
Uh, those were the boxes of information at the guidance counselor. Um, I couldn't take the college entrance exams in my hometown. I had to drive to Colorado. So like already there, the fact that I got like a scholarship to go to a wonderful liberal arts school, it gave me opportunities. It helped me. It really just held my hand and spoon fed me uh, in a way that I could be successful. Like I, I just, I didn't do really any of this alone. I didn't end up, you know, on the faculty at Georgetown by myself. Like it has just been continual help and assistance and boosting and mentorship and people reaching their hands out and wanting to see me be successful. And I think one of the reasons that's true is because they knew like I was good for it. Like I was going to come back and help people. Um, I was going to figure out like how to keep, how to keep making progress move forward, not just sort of rest on my laurels or, um, or quit, right? Like that I think is really important. And, and I worry a lot that those, those doors are just shutting to, to people now, Americans and other, other countries as well. It's this wealth gap. It's just the access mm -hmm. to even the idea or the, the expectation that you can have some kind of influence or a voice or be impactful in your life and your work. Um, so yeah, like a, a lot of what I do working in Congress now is making sure those pathways are open to people and that mm -hmm. inclusive and reflective of the changes we've seen in demographics. But um, yeah, like the, the system we're in, this sort of late capitalism, it, it has to change. Like we're we're up against the wall now. Like we, we can't go on like this. We can't go on in a country that, uh, that is so punishing to so many and that what do you see? Has va values so what, are so distorted. <laughs> so what do you see in Aztec today? Like, I remember you were chatting with me about, um, like your conversations with ranchers and the uh, one thing that struck me in our earlier conversation was that the connection um the connection with ranchers is very acute around climate like they can actually that's a population that can has a felt experience of global warming now it's maybe just that the the form of the messages and the messaging is is alienating oh for sure yeah the, the, i think it's because like we're really like the the middle of our, um, certainly I see it having worked in and around Congress for the last 20 years, the, the sort of, um, dissolution of the middle where you have, uh, the incentive and the alignment, political alignments are with the extremes, right? And so the whole process of deliberation and compromise and problem solving is is uh, not functional right now. It's really actually not functional. That's why you've seen so many bills pass in these sort of midnight uh, five people in the room. They're these omnibus legislation. They're called continuing resolutions where just everything gets shoved out the door and signed or they're special appropriations. Or it's like we've stopped doing the actual sort of deliberative process of lawmaking, which allows for the local voices to be translated into the national policy. And that uh, to me is also one of the breakdowns of where uh, legitimacy uh, at least used to be built up where you just had a participatory system 
there was a real conscious effort to be inclusive. And certainly in my 20-something years working in and around Congress, that whole process has just um, become stuck. It's not like the rules aren't there and it's not like the members don't want to do this. They do. It's that we've created this sort of top-down sort of very coercive um, information cartel that's led by the parties and the leadership. And the Democrats and the Republicans both do it. It's about raising money and the policy reflects that, right? It's the priorities of donors. So it's this donor class. And sometimes the membership organizations get in a word edgewise, like the big membership groups or the trade associations, Chamber of Commerce, Sierra Club. But at the same time, when you look at the data, and I can send you these articles, they're fascinating. Still, over 80% of the American public really doesn't get represented in the policy. Like, they just don't exist in the outcome. And so this is, this is why I, you know, so I, the interworkings of your world and the legislative process, to me, feel totally inscrutable and like I'd have to take out a new job to be able to figure out how to engage there. And also I have a sense that it's stuck and that was the impetus behind tomorrow's air was a little bit of sort of resignation on the unworkability of the legislative process. And therefore let's just end run that and let's, take action into our own hands. Let's start a corporate plus consumer movement that drives measurable change when it comes to climate. Let's help, let's let's support climate tech and solutions for climate that I'm afraid government will never get around to. Of course, now with Biden, there is, you know, a lot, um, there, there, there is legislation in play. And so it seems more hopeful but long term, the structures, you know, I'm sort of, I'm like at the level of the skin and you're at the level <laughs> of the organs, right? Like the structures don't really work. Can you, and so this brings me to the, uh, the Modernizing Congress project. Maybe is this a good segue into that project that you're leading at Georgetown? Yes. And I think, I think that all, all hands on deck, right? Especially to deal with the implications of climate change. And uh, what's going to happen, I think, is like we're going to hit these tipping points like the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest right now, where you're just going to get accumulated more and more people uh, aware of this problem and then probably feel somewhat relieved that, oh, a lot of people have been working on this already. You're going to have adjacent groups of people like yourself and me working on uh, problem solving and, and, and sort of a an open public interest way. Um, there's corporations involved in this, right? It's it's not, there's no like whole group of bad guys or us versus them. It just depends. Like, you know, the people who are concerned about this in a way that is uh, uh, about, you know, the future and their children's lives and a habitable earth and, you know, uh, climate restoration, that's part of it, right? Like how do we in a hundred years get, you know, create a, a situation that humans can, exist in and move forward and and have some confidence um, for our kids and the planet uh, that that to me is is great that that exists like what, what where would we be once you get the political leadership 
they they follow more than later. They act simultaneously more than like get out in front. I think that's something that uh, took me a long time to realize working in the heart of democratic systems, right, is that they need someone to to take the risk out of action before elected leaders mm. uh, will move on it. Mm-hmm. And we're much mm-hmm. more sophisticated about that right now. But you like, can't take this. the risk out of action. Like that's so... Right? I know, but that's when what's do you with ever? The, <laughs> right, you can't ever. Right, you can't. But like mm-hmm. the way we have aligned our democratic system right now, it's it's a it's kind of just a. I like to call it the talking points industrial complex. Um, what is rewarded is on the on the left is sort of noise. On the right, it's money, and so the parties have been aligned not on governing and problem solving, but more on um, sort of protest and capture. If that makes sense, so. The right has just captured all kinds of organs of government. Look at the Supreme Court. Look at the court system. They spend much more money, the big corporate uh, conservative, ideologically conservative leaders in the Coke industries. They're just, I can name them. There's there's a, a group of 12 especially that have been written about that have really captured the governing system. And they've either outsourced the function to their friends or privatized it. Um, and that, you know, and then you privatize the whole institutional memory of democracy, right? It's like K street and lawyers. The reason they bill so much every hour and they make so much money is that they, they're the ones that wrote the bill, right? It's this revolving door in and out of government. Um, and that's the sustainable career path. It's really hard. That's why there's like only a handful of us working on the stuff I'm working on is there's only a handful of of people working on it because there's hardly any foundation support or any way to, to support it. Um, and so and the, then on the, the, on the left, it's been noise. It's been social media. It's been these huge like thunderclaps on Twitter thinking somehow mm. that that's going to change uh, the rule of law or the lawmaking process. It doesn't, it's an important signal. And I'm not saying it's not important, but there's a division of labor in the process that we just, it's not robust. It, you know, it, it can't compete with capturing the branch of government. <laughs> That's what we're, we're going to have to figure out now with Biden is, you know, the right is, is busy capturing state legislatures upstream now. That's what these voter suppression laws are. So mm-hmm. in the Senate, right, is, it's a completely obsolete, old-fashioned, you know, 19th century institution. Um, So that's why the modernization stuff is so important. It really is the age of of the sort of do-gooder nerds, like to get into that space, to be the first movers, to make it the next iteration of democracy. The Modernizing Congress project then has some, some work streams within it around like how information how the how the information from the populace can reach the legislators and the the mechanisms for that along with i remember a chat we were having about the sort of archaic nature just physically of congress like you know wi-fi doesn't work in certain parts of the building so it's like <laughs> We need new we need new processes within Congress and processes around how Congress interacts with external its constituents, along with a physical overhaul. Is the is your so at the at the Beak Center 
are you all are are writing papers or what are you doing? What happens? How do you think about how do you structure this? Because it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. But for anybody sort of listening, I'm like a technical writer for Congress. So I take a lot of complicated changes inside the institution and translate it to playbooks or like a manual that like you can do this too. Um, but the, the thing that is really significant and that's important is, is think about this old stodgy marble sandbox sitting on Capitol Hill. It, it just refused to change for so long and it sort of stripped its own funding for itself. It's still really reliant on sort of three ring binders and big metal file cabinets. In 2019, it created a committee of members to start to figure out how to change Congress and modernize it to use data and technology. Um, and then COVID hit. So COVID, COVID moved uh, Congress forward 100 years in 48 hours because they had to change all their workflow rules to allow Congress to, to actively work remotely. And, um, you know, all these members who were refusing you know, who were behind their kindergartners and eighth graders when it came to using Zoom or online platforms or WebEx or whatever platform they wanted to use, Teams, they all of a sudden had to learn to do this. And there was no option but to learn to do this if you wanted to continue carrying on in your duties. And Congress passed a rules on May 15th last year that utterly transformed it into the digital world um, and it's spent this last year, members have spent this last year learning how to do it. And so we're at this really interesting turning point right now of um, how much of the workflow can be, you know, carry on electronically. Just think about this. The last time they had like a document revision in Congress for how information is documented was the Civil War. Like it still uses a Civil War era template for documents. So th that like... It's so hugely inefficient and it, it just blocks all kinds of really interesting innovations and ways to incorporate local expertise and voice. But all of a sudden, as of last May, committee hearings were happening in districts and you could dial into a committee hearing from Alaska or Hawaii or in the middle of a snowstorm mm -hmm. or <laughs> mm -hmm. from you know northern Maine. And that's the really interesting part to me. It's not like we're not, we don't have a direct democracy. Uh, we will never have one. Our system is very indirect. It's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a republic. It's indirect. It's one, uh, you know, one member for 800,000 people and the Senate is you know, two per state and it's really uh, not representative in its heart in the way the House is. So I'm really much more interested in how the House of Representatives can start incorporating far more local voices into the policymaking process. And that's what we've been working on. And part of it is simply, how do you create a trustworthy, credible, you know, curation system for local contributions? The problem, of course, as you know, is all of these online systems get gamed. And mm -hmm. the worst mm -hmm. example is the Facebook, right? It's an advertising platform. It never proffered to be anything but an advertising platform. Of course, Putin got in on it. Of course, countries that want to do us harm are taking out ad buys. Far more, you know, far more effective and cheaper than nuclear weapons complex, by the way, is to like 
destroy the social cohesion that makes this really multiracial democracy successful. And that, that's what we have to take seriously, is that um, we, we have to build a competitive public serving trust engine. We have to create a public serving infrastructure that competes with what's happening in the private sector uh, in the information space. Um, so there's all kinds of ways to do that. And the question is, is like, how do we, you know, those of us working in these adjacent spaces, you and like carbon removal and capture and spreading the word and, you know, having these larger conversations, like we really need to organize ourselves and connect to power uh, in a far more sophisticated and intentional way now, because we have to beat the curve, like we have to beat the climate curve. Um, and we're up against a lot of these conspiracies and stuff. It, it's uh, it's a tough. Uh, <laughs> it, Our it, conversations it's, always. I'm always left feeling like simultaneously um, galvanized and also overwhelmed. I know <laughs> the, but this is it. I feel like so. I need to take my resignation with the political process and figure out a way in, right? Like you sent me some things around um, representatives who are holding public hearings over over Zoom or whatever um, to, to engage on, on climate subjects. And so it was, I think, you know, you were like, hey, have a look at this. You find out if your representative is getting involved in this and actually you know, New Mexico is very involved in carbon removal and carbon capture. It's it here. It's focused on from industrial sources, which is different than what tomorrow's air is looking at. But I know that in the in the whole energy transition, this is going to be a chunk of it. Um, so even though I'm not actively um, engaged in supporting that, I should know about it. And I should engage with the political process somehow, right? And so these like online fora are would be ways for me to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I learned when I was working in Congress was that like um, there's no guarantee that like what one group does is going to carry forward and be used as sort of an organizing framework for, you know, growing and expanding. Uh, and I, you know, I, I looked up carbon removal in Congress. Gov, which is the Library of Congress uh, mm. legislative search engine. And Jamie Raskin, who's a member from Maryland, introduced a resolution in 2018 on this issue, on carbon removal and all hands on deck. And we need to explore everything. And we need a, you know, a Trinity project. Uh, we need a, a moonshot to get everything, uh, to get everything going and moving toward um, a, a livable climate. So right there, you have a fairly recent document in the archives of the legislature. You now have a climate crisis committee that has tremendous power of recognition and framing. And I, if you listen to any of their sort of hearings, they're covering all kinds of interesting things. And they have a, a real diverse panel, meaning the membership of the committee itself is representative of all parts of the United States. Is like that's the kind of committee that I think you could approach and just say, hey, you know, we sketched out a, a what a an ideal 
uh, an ideal series of hearings might look like, or field hearings, or uh, member convened events. And what a lot of what I work on is how do we take really great information and make sure it metabolizes into the system. So we developed a a type of a, a gathering called a side event, which compromises between a hearing, which is these stodgy things on Capitol Hill, and a town hall, which is open process in you know the school gymnasium, which frankly a lot of members don't want to do anymore because it's loud and 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 sometimes abusive and can be dangerous even, but it, it's like the loud people always take over with an open mic. But this is a much more curated process, and it's subject matter specific, and it stands for stakeholders, individuals, data, and evidence. And it's a way for a member to convene using all these new electronic platforms and collect local knowledge or lived experience or data and submit it for the record of Congress, meaning this digital archive. And that means like just like this piece of legislation I, I pulled up from Jamie Raskin, that makes it available to people as a piece of legislative history and it informs future action and you know it's an incredibly powerful search tool to be going to go into congress and say hey you already did this um here let's let's do something about this that's that's what i don't see happening nearly as well on the sort of public global public interest side of things as you do on like changing the law to benefit a a lucrative industry. That's what they pay just incredible amounts of money to K Street and lobbyists and private law firms do that. They write the bill language. Now we're in this world where if we if we put the right guardrails on it, real human beings living in real places like Aztec, New Mexico can help edit the law and draft it and and provide information as an advisory capacity while a bill is moving. Like that's so much like power. there's nothing precedented. So Lorelai, I want to go back to 1989 and you were in Berlin and you were there for the fall of the Berlin Wall and you've, you know, studied lots of places. What are the, I feel like there are lessons that you and I have talked about in history where we've had sort of dramatic um uh, irreconcilable conflict that actually has found its way to reconciliation. Can you uh, share some of your thoughts there? I'm thinking specifically about like, you know, what you saw in Berlin. And then also we were chatting about um, South Africa and Ireland. And Yeah. So I was in Berlin right up until the August before the fall of the wall. And I never lamented that I wasn't there because I I knew it very well while it was still this sort of totalitarian system that punished and created just a whole alternative universe to, you know, crush people and, uh, you know, obliterate freedom and, and people's individual lives and make people join these organizations and the communist youth and uh, in order to, you know, get in the queue for a car, an apartment, an education, like everything was transactional based on this terrible set of lies. I mean, the Soviet, the, uh, Soviet Union did this as a way to keep power in a lot of the Eastern Bloc. And, and Russia, sadly, has, has fallen into a version of that now with Putin, I think. But um, East Germany, a lot of what I did was 
take uh, books into the underground library systems. And um, they would be shared by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people would read these, these texts. And I would bring in things by philosophers or George Orwell, like 1984, or, you know, Hannah Arendt. Wait, wait, this sounds so exciting. Wait, it's funny, like when a revolution, you're taking books into an underground library system in 1989 in Berlin. It sounds romantic and exciting. So I got to tell you, while while a revolution's happening, you don't know it's happening. Like it's always after you call it that. Like when I was doing this in 1989, nobody had any idea that the wall was going to come down in two months or that, you know, the, the, uh, this awful regime was still going to be there and in perpetuity. And these people who took their risks to fight it in that system, they're just my heroes. Like they had no, no hope of a, an immediate gain. Like they were just going to be punished and marginalized for, for their life. Like they, the idea that the wall was going to come down, like nobody was talking about that in the underground libraries. Um, So yeah, it was an incredible of time to be there. Um, Americans are really, uh, I just love that about Americans. You would see them everywhere in Eastern Europe. Like I was in Romania and, you know, the Soviet Union and Bulgaria, like all over the place. And you'd always see Americans running around doing stuff. And I think that I love that about the American character. And I, I hope we haven't lost that, which is like, you don't know better. So you're not afraid. It's not like you're being courageous or fearless. It doesn't occur to you to be scared. Oh my right? God. Lorelai, so. this is, just sums it all up. You just don't, yeah. I just don't know any better. Right. And therefore. Yeah. It doesn't, yes. you're, nobody, like, you're right. When, they, when they're like taking away your magazines and you're just like, what? Like, I know you're going to read those. <laughs> right. The, and like I did the idea that I would be punished and I was thrown into detention a couple of times and thrown off trains. But at, at the same time, you're always just like, huh, okay, well, fine. You know, I'll get another one. So it's this mm-hmm. like eternal problem solving optimism that you've got to mm-hmm. love about Americans. Um, and I, I often thought after nine 11, like that was the one thing I hope we didn't lose. Like, how do we keep that? Because it's this wonderful quality of sort of innate ability to take risks because you don't know you're taking them. Right. And I feel like Mm -hmm. we need to marshal Mm -hmm. that fabulous characteristic of our country right now. Um, This uh, and, and like, yeah, like what you're doing, it's an, an, an incredible time to, to be, the, the group or the person that just does the like not nearly as sexy or exciting work of slogging it out in the process that we have. Um, the, you know, my, my background at Stanford was uh, with the behavioral science team there. And, and so they're really well known now as the sort of thinking fast and slow and the weaponization of, of uh, brain science and behavioral science. Like my mentors were, Amos Tversky and Lee Ross and Ken Arrow, and that's who I worked with. And when when we were working on these things, it was always like for world peace. So uh, South Africa is a great example of you had this incredible leader. And the way Nelson Mandela, the reason he was so important is that he shifted the system because he shifted the conversation by saying simply, everybody, like, we will have a shared future. Nobody's going to be forced to leave. 
And so in a democracy, it's like you either have to have a shared vision of the future or you have to be working toward a shared vision of the future. Like you can't, like you can't uh, let, like, I don't think we have that sense right now is like, okay, well, if, if this old vision, you know, we had the shared vision of the founding fathers and stuff, it's very contested. Well, we need to start working toward a vision of something else then. And let's just do that. And let's give ourselves permission to to find and you know work toward a new vision of a shared future. But like the whole part that's key is the shared part, and it's really important at the right time for leaders to step up and say, "We're all going to be here, and you know communities of cooperators succeed." There is science that proves that, like cooperators succeed in ways that you know transactional. Uh, you know, tooth and nail, uh, completely uh, rapacious systems just don't. They're, that is not a way forward. And like that to me would wrap it up nicely for Americans to be like, oh, okay, like we're all going to be in this together one way or the other. Uh, let's let's start. And, and right now we, we need to bring in some of these outliers somehow. I think a lot about how do you walk people back from the conspiracy theories that are scaling or there's this huge, very lucrative industry doing it on purpose, right? Like scaling conspiracy and making a ton of money off of misinformation and their sort of Arizona audit. I'm doing air quotes. Um, so this is parallel universe. I, I saw that when I worked in Congress, I saw these sort of, and this was the right wing. It's not, a, a, it's not a, it's not equal. It's not like either or. There's no competition for what's happened. Um, it, I, I worked for Republicans, right? Like I'm not saying this is beyond party. Like we are beyond that right now. We're into identity, and and if you come at a, you know an identity fight with policy, you're going to lose, right? You you can't you can't just keep coming back with well this and well this and this. You have to like deal with the grief. And deal with the loss, and I feel like if we would do that in a in a concerted way, we could talk some people down from the ledge. We could remind them you, that it's going to be okay. So Ireland was another place that we talked about that I think um, is has found resolution, even though, particularly when you mention identity, that you know found a way to coexist despite an identity mismatch. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and of course we're seeing like how that's fragile because of the, you know, Brexit and withdrawing and that so much of Ireland and Northern Ireland had been integrated economically. And so the waivers that are in this withdrawal of the UK have, you know, for Ireland and Northern Ireland um, commerce. But uh, yeah, the, the, I think there you had 30 years of of people who live next to each other are all sort of related, killing each other. And um, finally, you, you had this, this middle out process, which is a way to say that like the leadership was in place, but there was also a grassroots movement supporting it. Um, I read create. that article you sent me, yeah. by the way, Lorelai. I printed it and I read the middle <laughs> out. <laughs> for it, Recap that for people. I loved your, um, when you said this is sort of very hip among nerds in 2018. And I was like, ah, oh, 
I thought I, I was a nerd and like, I thought I was hip and I did not <laughs> know about this oh, in 2018. Dude. What was I doing? It's just that the the thing is, is like we have the, like, the, the thing is, is like things aren't accidents, they're outcomes. And a piece is an outcome. It's, it's not an accident. And it happens because people are in the right place and the right time working at it. And right now, uh, I think we need to find each other to work at this problem of the climate crisis, for example. Like it can't be everybody, you know, ships in the night, um, ship has sailed, <laughs> whatever. Um, we have to uh, find each other and be real intentional and support process and governing an inclusive future. And those things, again, like they just, they don't happen by accident. And in in Northern Ireland, you, you had a lot of the leadership being uh, at the end of the day from people who were, um, you know, in prison for being part of the IRA or who had committed um, violence. So the, the whole issue of violent extremism and preventing violent extremism, if you like, it's hashtag PVE on Twitter, you can read about the really amazing art and science involved in preventing violent conflict. Um, you know, there's three things that always happen. There's a permissive environment. That means you have broad acceptance of, of like uh, us versus them mentality, exclusionary language. Then you have a precipitating event which is an election or a natural catastrophe. And then you have a push. And a push is usually a recruiter in place to grab people when they're vulnerable. And I would argue that over the last four years with the last administration, you had these three Ps, a permissive environment, a precipitating event, and a push. You had a recruiter in chief in the White House who pushed people. And so it's complex in the sense that it's not like come up and sign this list it's that you have people preying on vulnerable grievance experiences and um, recruiting them and uh, then feeding it. And that, that we have to interrupt that. Like we have to come up with a better alternative. Um, and I'm not like I was at the, so I was back in home in DC in the winter and I was at the, I went to the, the rallies in December and, and I went January 5th. I was out there the night before the insurrection. And it was definitely a very sinister crowd. It was different than the other rallies. The other rallies were kind of, I don't know, QAnon Coachella, like a music festival, a lot of t-shirts, a lot of dancing, costumes, you know, still stuff that is alarming when you think about its implications. But January 5th was scary and militant and, um, dangerous rhetoric and lots of almost violent appearances like camo belts and uh, backpacks like the like I saw them the night before this happened and so reflecting back on it I didn't go out on the 6th because I was so disturbed by what I saw um, we have to get really really clear about what's happening here and stop lumping it all into these big categories. Um, radical mm. belief systems are not the same as violent behavior. And mm -hmm. we're not very good mm -hmm. at that right now. We can't keep going on thinking that this is anything we've seen before. Um, Different. again, like we have the people who have worked on this in other countries, it's called a threat assessment and an integrated peace building strategy. We know how to do this. 
but I think it's this this belief like the Americans still aren't quite like we're in this denial like that that this can't happen to us um, and indeed like we can do something about it that's the thing to know I well this is the American optimism I Lorelai <laughs> I want so I just love listening to you uh, go on I want though to get a little bit into some of your personal again so you were married and now you're not and you and your husband both shared this um very rural like can do i think the perspective you bring as people from really rugged american rural spaces into corporate congress ivy league sort of structured spaces is so powerful. I think that gives you such a different perspective. Like, how did you, can you say a little bit about that, um, that time in your life? Like how, where, where he came from and how you guys came together and what, what you see as some of the, the power in that background? Yeah, no, I'm sure like one of the reasons we we were so, had such affinity for each other is he grew up like, you know, in the Delta, Mississippi, outside sort of um, Tyler town uh, in a fish camp, like, you know, hardly a trailer park. <laughs> I grew up in like the one lousy house in the trailer park. Uh, and I think we both saw each other as like, wow, um, you have this empathy for people that are usually either in the margin or left behind or not, uh, a bit, not suitable for these um elite spaces and you know I've and you still been have that yeah I'm, like you say we have to I'm find each other by the elite i gotta tell you <laughs> but, yeah I, I i guess like i'm not very impressed by the elites in the united states right now like what look what look what's happened to us it's it's not okay um you know it, it's this we're all busy like fighting this intersectional grievance olympics or training for it instead of like getting down to the to the areas that are uncomfortable for people and finding those crossover personalities, people who grew up as scatter plots in the red and the blue and are still sort of love, love them. Like carrying both those identities, right? Like you have both yeah, of those. You don't have to choose. Like that's the one thing. I, I think divorced mm -hmm. children get that too, right? Like mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. you don't have to choose. Like children of divorce, I think have immense intuitive knowledge about how to handle our situation. Like if you choose, it's incredibly destructive to you personally. Um, you have to figure out a way to balance these alternative diametrically opposed worldviews. That's how you live. And I always, I always identified with Barack Obama for that, the middle child of divorce or, you know, or the, <laughs> um, a child of divorce is that you have to be figuring it out all the time. How do you, prevent? How do you reconcile? How do you prevent? How do you create new options all the time so you can keep going, so you can live and breathe and move forward? Um, that there's some, We have the wisdom in us. Uh, it looks different, right? It's in different parts of our lives. But for sure, like that, you know, rural Mississippi, rural New Mexico, ending up in a big, shiny blue city full of opportunity and interesting things to talk about. It's just been incredible. Um, but it's also like you can't have modernization without development of 
the rest of the country, including rural areas. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. can't do Mm -hmm. it. Like it's just never been true in history. You have to do both. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just rural broadband, like it's all kinds of other things. And the, the climate <laughs> it's crisis not just is a way to the integrate. internet. It's, oh my gosh. The internet <laughs> isn't going to solve it. And yelling on Twitter isn't going to solve it. Um, Lorelai, that made me think, yes, of your book. So speaking of solutions, I know that you're kind of working on a treatment for a book um, that, I am infatuated with the concept. Can you recap that a little bit and then? Yeah. I mean, in in my life, it's, uh, you know, I started out looking at like the fact or understanding the fact that we spent the last century figuring out how we were all going to die together. We need to spend this century figuring out how we're all going to live together. (laughs) And um, it's that simple. It's that simple. And it's actually not as scary when you think about it. And we, we know that we can do this if we devote energy, resources, time, and thought to it. And actually, like, it, it requires people, I think you as well, like you grew up in Alaska, and you have this wild sort of, you know, never-ending horizon upbringing. Um, and people like that, like who have these combined backgrounds, I think are really interesting. Everybody has some kind of a combined background. I'm just talking about the urban-rural or like the red blue background where you you can find a point of shared perspective even if you don't agree with it you empathize with the person you're you're not going to shut them out um you know you can find ways to pivot the conversation like i grew up here in this red right wing very religious area and we just talked about horses and dogs and sports and um eating out and gardens and i went you know, I went to church with people and it didn't, and I had just a solid enough upbringing to like be respectful and just be like, okay, you know, thank you. Um, I, and that's just it is like, I never thought that, um, I, I never experienced any kind of us versus them either in, in my very red right wing upbringing. <laughs> and I, I rely on that a lot right now to, ca- to counter the and so, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what would be a way to to um, tell stories of of different kinds of people that might have the immediate Im- impression would be a political identity or a set of belief systems, and start to introduce some contradiction in there. That's one of the first steps in you know in breaking up us versus them is it to introduce mm. cognitive dissonance. Like, don't let people get away with that simplified us versus them a worldview and and then then people are like oh actually i knew that like i know this person like i've met this person and really try to try to help people see that we're all living together already all the time one of my favorite sayings from my mentor at stanford lee ross who just died recently was uh you know the banality of virtue which is we, we lots of times talk about sort of evil systems, but there's also a lot of virtue in systems of how we live our lives. And we, we get along the vast majority of the time, all the time. And we're just not conscious of it. And we're not, you know, intentional about it. And I feel like, like just figuring out how to, one of the ways to walk back this, um, uh, this uh, anger and grievance and the weaponization of that 
is to is to write about these different models of how you can see people, but how they actually get along all the time, and that we're abiding by social contracts and getting along, and we do it for lots of reasons, not because of rule of law, but because we love it. Um, and those are, or, or it's geographic, or there's just we're so we're so complicated, and we're just focused right now on these really big categories, and they're unacceptable, and we see where it's leading us, the us versus them worldview, the, uh, the way that our, our economic system has allowed the monetization and the weaponization of relationships uh, that are required for a democracy to succeed. Like that, we have to stop and develop some other pathways now. And I feel like I, I would like to work on that because I, I have the behavioral science um, mentoring to be able to sit and say, these are some really basic ways that we can think differently and train ourselves. You know, Malcolm Gladwell does a lot of this really well, and um, Adam Grant and, and some other authors that I've seen, which are, you know, stop and, and like be aware of what's happening and how you're thinking right now. Um, Congress just had a group of people come in last week and do a hearing on this, including Adam Grant, who's a, uh, a speaker in this world of how social psychology and how humans exist in systems and how to make the best of it and try to create a better world that cooperates. Um, so that's actually a huge step forward right there. You had a congressional hearing on getting along. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of ways to do that. I, I'm on all kinds of other deadlines for writing though. <laughs> so I, I have to like, <laughs> do I have to write the book as a side gig for now? But I definitely think that the time is right for those kinds of conversations to help people just get past their own tipping point and break through mm -hmm. and be like, oh, my gosh, yes, these are universal human ways. Fear is something that everyone has and grief, grief is, too. And all of us are going through fear and grief right now. You can't like unless you're in complete denial or waiting for the apocalypse, like you can't. Look at what's totally happening. Totally stoned. Yeah, yeah. You cannot, without saying, like, I'm worried. I'm kind of worried. Like, what does this mean for me? Mm -hmm. And the truth mm -hmm. is, of, like, it can mean great things. Like, we, like, I was like that. Like, Canterbury, remember, like, travel, like, your industry, like, go mm -hmm. more slowly and take longer and stay there mm -hmm. and, like, stop mm -hmm. with these, like, weekend trips to Thailand and, like, go there and, and live for six months. Mm -hmm. of, this is like, to me, a that, very core element of the, you know, in travel, we talk about decarbonizing travel. Uh, it's, you know, there's, there's all these things we can do and need to do around removing carbon, but also we need to reduce how much we put out there because, you don't have to remove it if you don't put it out there. And it turns out that so many of the things that we would do to benefit the climate with travel also make travel more fun, you know, staying longer. And I think the, the pandemic has made being a digital nomad, we've got research on this, like this is something you can, and families are doing this, you can actually, it's not so unheard of to move someplace for a period of time and kind of get more embedded. I do see, I think um, travel is very key to this like sense of finding each other that we have to do. 
in order to find a way to come up with policies that allow us to cohabit on the earth into into the future. Um, for sure, for sure. So, it's like you can't replace that being there in person and being in contact with actually other humans and staying there in the same geographic space. It's utterly, utterly vital. Absolutely. When you, Lorelai, I want to ask you before we close, because now I've been listening to you. I just love it. I could go on. It's an hour. <laughs> I've taken an hour of your time. Oh. I want to ask you what kind of music you listen to when you go for a walk out in Aztec, New Mexico with these wild, endless skies. What kind of music do you listen to? Or what are you humming in your head? You know what? I have three cases of burned CDs from a uncle, a gay uncle in San Francisco who, <laughs> who died last year. And I've Amazing. been going through show tunes. And oh my God, all it's kind so of different classical music arrangements. I have them all stacked up here and I'm, I'm, I'm doing it as an honor to him and uh, wondering where he was when he listened to this music mm -hmm. or did he go to the show? And so it's just mm -hmm. this joyous um, experience of, of like honoring him, thinking of him, being grateful for him. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, and I, I, I have another drive back to D.C. in September. I'm going to listen to the rest of them. <laughs> I'm going to picture you so. and that dog hauling it back to the the sandbox. What did you call it? This marble the sandbox? marble sandbox on yeah the marble sandbox <laughs> on Capitol Hill, which is sort of what it is. Um, but yeah, like I think people like it. it we're at a, cr a a critical moment where where people are tired of being angry. It's not a sustainable emotion for governing in a democracy. It's just not. And we have to come up with alternatives. And those are, are, are being, they are in place. And like, we can transform this. Um, that is the hopeful. And just reconnect and take that risk and reach out and figure out who's representing you and how do we move this forward? And how do we get people beyond the talking points and into sharing? Mm-hmm. Lorelai, thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure, my dear. I hope I get to see you soon. For sure.